Radio Land, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm joined in the studio today by Boris Draliuk, the executive editor of LARB. Hello, Eric. And today we've got a double header. First, we'll be speaking with poet Adam O'Reardon, alongside translators Boris Draliuk, who's with me now, and David Shook about the Manchester Writing School and strengthening the UK-LA literary connection. Then we'll be speaking with curator Amanda de la Garza about visualizing language, Oaxaca in L.A., a new installation of the Central Library that explores the relationship between indigenous cultures, histories, and contemporary struggle in Los Angeles. Well, I'm very glad we had a chance to speak with Adam and with David about the Manchester Writing School. I think it was a fascinating conversation about Los Angeles, about the writing community here and the writing community in the U.K., and uh, continued relationships between those communities. Yeah, and we also had a great conversation with Amanda de la Garza. The murals that are on view now in the Central Public Library are truly fantastic and give us a whole way of actually rethinking kind of how cultural influence operates in L.A. Absolutely. All right, so let's get to it. We are thrilled to be joined in the studio today by no less than three distinguished guests, Adam O'Reardon, Boris Draliuk, and David Shook, to talk about the Manchester Writing School, which has recently added three new visiting teaching fellows from Los Angeles, two of whom join us here today. Adam Reardon is an English poet, the academic director of the Manchester Writing School, and a senior lecturer in creative writing with an emphasis on poetry. He studied English at Oxford and became the youngest poet in residence at the Wordsworth Trust, the Center for British Romanticism, in 2008. His first collection of poetry, In the Flesh, won a Somerset Malgam Award in 2011. This year, he released not one, but two new collections, The Burning Ground, a book of short stories published by Bloomsbury in January, and just a month later, A Herring Famine, a collection of poems published by Randall house in February. Boris Draliuk is the executive editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He is also, and predominantly, a literary translator and holds a PhD in Slavic languages and literatures from UCLA, where he taught Russian literature for a number of years. His work has appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, The New Yorker, London Review of Books, The Guardian, and other journals. He is the author of Western Crime Fiction Goes East, The Russian Pinkerton Craze, 1907, and the translator of several volumes of Russian and Polish, including most recently, Isaac Babel's Red Cavalry and Odessa Stories. He is also the editor of 1917, Stories and Poems from the Russian Revolution, and co-editor with Robert Chandler and Irina Mashinsky of the Penguin Book of Russian Poetry. David Shook is a poet, translator, publisher, and filmmaker. His debut collection, Our Obsidian Tongues, was published by Eyewear in 2013. Shook's short documentary film, Kilometer Zero, records the poetry of Equatorial Guinean poet Marcelo Ensema Nsang. He has served as the editor of Molossus and Phony Media and is a contributing editor to World Literature Today and Ambit. Welcome all three of you to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Adam, can you tell our listeners who may not be familiar a little bit about the Manchester Writing School? Yeah, so we're the, I think we're the oldest writing school in Britain and we're the biggest and I think arguably the most successful. There are three Mm. big claims. Um, It's part of Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm the academic director, but we have (laughs) Caroline Duffy, the poet laureate, is our creative director. So she's been there for many years now. We teach an MFA um, in children's writing, um, poetry, and the novel, they're the three roots. And it's just, I think it's the largest postgraduate writing community in Britain. So it's a very vibrant city. It's a very vibrant course. And that's us, really. We have the Manchester Poetry Prize Mm. and the Manchester Fiction Prize, which are the largest prizes for new writing in the country. They award £10,000 for new work each year. 
And I think we've got something like 75 or 85 published graduates now, including a long-listed writer for the Man Booker Prize and a winner of the Costa Prize for Poetry. So That's fantastic. That sucks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why draw from Los Angeles? On the one hand, you know, people tend to associate Los Angeles primarily with screenwriting if they associate with writing at all. Yeah. And yet I was thinking that there's a lot of interesting kind of UK LA connections, right? So obviously ones would be Christopher Isherwood, WH mm-hmm. Auden, there's also Huxley, Evelyn Waugh. And even contemporary writers. Well, Chandler, Raymond Chandler in his own way, educated in Britain, but also Jeff Nicholson, for example. So kind of, you know, is this a connection between the UK and Los Angeles that we've forgotten about in terms of literature or? Yeah, I mean, I I think you map it perfectly there. It's always existed and that there are sort of deep roots. I think it's also interesting to think about the similarities between rainy Manchester and sunny Los Angeles. <laughs> as, as, a as study sort of, in contrast. Yeah, yeah. But in some ways, but in other ways, I think that there's lots in terms of the spirit of the places, in terms of not being the main place, but being a place that has an energy and a creativity and a certain type of history to it. And I think there are lots of sort of overlaps there. But as you say, there is this mm. great line of British and English writers who've come to Los Angeles and found something here that's brought their writing to life. And I think those two things sit quite nicely. What does LA together. mean to Brits? You're a Brit. Tell yeah, me what I'm LA Brit, means yeah. to you. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot to me. You know, it's a very, very special place for me. I think for, well, look, one of the things I was amazed by that when I first started spending time in the US in, you know, sort of around the year 2000, I guess, coming here regularly, going to New York, and then around 2008, I started spending time regularly mm. in Los Angeles. And I was always amazed by how few New Yorkers, sort of well-traveled, worldly, literate New Yorkers, had a connection to Los Angeles. Mm. They struck me as, as L.A. blind as maybe some Brits would be. So I guess <laughs> in England, we have the sort of cinematic precedents. We have the right. literary precedents. We have the sort of the versions of the city that come down in popular culture. So I think it's, a, you know, it, it's probably quite an exotic place for a lot of British people. And I think that's something that's borne out by... You know, you come to Los Angeles from rainy England and you see a hummingbird or you mm-hmm. smell eucalyptus. And these things are kind of wild. They're very, very different, you know, to yeah. anything we have back home. So there's a great, di- this strange sort of nexus of things that are quite similar in terms of feeling and tone of the place and things that are just radically different, very, very different. And it's, there's a kind of alchemy to that. There's something very strong. Well, and personally, L.A. is also a, um, a setting or a figure for your latest collection of short stories, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Okay. So the eight stories in The Burning Ground are all set in Los Angeles in various parts of its history from the kind of 1950s onwards. So let's also ask um, Boris and David, what are you guys going to be doing at the Manchester Writing School? I'm really excited to explore a bit more what we'll be doing. I think <laughs> these these early ties between the cities are really exciting. Manchester Met has some new initiatives that I am incredibly excited about as a writer and translator, especially, and as a publisher, as the publisher of Phony Media. They have a new poetry library that they're building, which Adam can tell us a bit more about. But it's it's going to be big, and I'm excited about the opportunity to collaborate with the library. And really, I think just to continue to build these ties that, like Adam said, have historically existed. And in a lot of ways, I think that he is, you know, the heir of, of Isherwood and these other British writers who go before him. I think... I'm mostly, you know, I I love Manchester. The few times that I've been there, for me, the most exciting thing is the opportunity to to spend a little time, you know, do my pilgrimage to the Hacienda (laughs) and uh, make a little new work. For me, it's a continuation of, I think, a relationship that 
has lasted for a number of years. As a translator, as a contributor to periodicals, I've been dealing with UK publishers for quite some mm. time. A lot of my closest collaborators live in the UK, and I taught at the University of St. Andrews for some time as well. I'm very hopeful that this new link will just strengthen that chain of connectivity between Los Angeles and the UK. Yeah, and for both of you as kind of US-based or Los Angeles-based writers and translators and media makers of various stripes, what does the UK mean to you? Well, I'm endlessly fascinated by how the UK perceives us. Mm. Uh, I'm endlessly fascinated by, by the ongoing conversation between, uh, let's say, not to quote Byron, but, you know, <laughs> English poets and Scotch reviewers, but uh, Los Angeles and US writers and British reviewers and vice versa. So I'm, I'm always looking, as an editor at the LARB, I'm always looking at how the UK perceives our work. Many of our readers are based in the UK. Many of our contributors are UK-based as well. We don't limit ourselves to simply work published in the U.S. We review work published in the U.K. quite a lot. I think that it's a very fruitful conversation, and I hope that LARB contributes to that conversation regularly. To loop back to what David was talking about, Adam, can you elaborate on some of the initiatives and projects that you've got going on at the Manchester Writing School? You know, the library was one thing that David yeah. had mentioned. Well, we have this, one of, one of the things we're really proud of, which is a U.K.-based initiative at the moment, is a competition we run yearly called Mother Tongue, Other Tongue. And it's for students, high school students, to translate either a poem from their mother tongue into English or from English into their mother tongue. And it's this, it's, you know, kind of a really wonderful celebration of the, I think I read somewhere recently that Manchester was the third most ethnically diverse city after Paris. And really? I guess New York would be the other one. Mm-hmm. So it's such wealth of language there. And at the writing school, we're really keen to foster that, to connect with that. Mm. And, to bring, and that, I think, speaks directly to a lot of the work David does at Phoneme and a lot of their initiatives. So we're thinking about ways of sort of creatively combining and patterning those things together and thinking of how we can build on initiatives like that, maybe make them international or build on them or indeed you know, give the young poets chances to work with editors like David or put a collection together or things like that. So just th- th- there are lots of these overlaps that are there. As a writer, Adam, I've, well, we've talked about this quite a lot, but do you draw inspiration from the work that you find here when you travel to the U.S.? Yeah, uh, I yeah. think that's right. I mean, absolutely. So you know, front and center in this latest collection of stories, it's a book that grew from my experience of Los Angeles. But it's also this idea of using Los Angeles as a, as a kind of prism, as a way of reflecting back on experiences that might not necessarily have been as poignant or as have stood out as clearly elsewhere. So I was talking about this at a, at a conference I've been speaking at at Mount St. Mary's, this idea that... I didn't know this when I was writing the book, but the stories are all about sort of lonely or disconnected men or men who are somehow not in, not mm-hmm. quite engaged with the worlds they're coming from and they find themselves in Los Angeles. And I think that one of the things that worked so well about those stories is that, you know, they could have been set elsewhere, but yeah. having the, the vibrancy and the difference and the distance that Los Angeles represents for these characters mm. is really powerful. It's that sort of counterpoint that exists in that that kind of brings them to life. So for me as a, as a writer, it's a sort of central place. And that's kind of true of the the energy I feel whenever I return to the U.S., which I do as regularly as I can. A productive alienation. Exactly that, yeah. Do you feel that there's as distinct, you know, as we kind of move forward in time, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in my own travels, and David, you would probably be able to respond to this even more productively, but the idea that the differences, the distinctiveness of local cultures, especially in large cities, feels less and less as you like move across the globe. There's some ways in which they feel distinct, but that you know places seem to borrow from one another, you know, more globalized economy, all of that kind of stuff. Do you still find that there are things that are quite distinctive 
about, say, Los Angeles and Manchester. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the interesting, <laughs> I mean, this uh, an anecdote to illustrate that. I was at the the New Order gig at the Hollywood Bowl last night, mm. and we were <laughs> rushing to get. We were a little bit late, and we were rushing to get our tickets. And the lady that was showing us the way noticed that we were from England. She said, "Oh, I live in Los Angeles, but my family. She was a Jamaican woman. My family live in Bristol, and I travel to Bristol every mm. year. So there are all of these sort of interconnected yeah. lives, all these all these types of internationalism that exist." And they're there on all the levels, yes. through from sort of literary society to people working in various types of jobs. So I think the whole world is, you know, you realize the energy with which the world is is globalized. But at the same time, I guess there are these great differences that still exist, the way communities can be sheltered by and grow within cities in ways that are very different from their points of origin. I think there's something to be said, too, just about the physical displacement as a kind of initiative for noticing new things. It's not just necessarily how different things are, but how out of context we as writers are and what that reveals to oh, us. Oh, can you tell me more about that? Like, what's an example of, of that that's happened to you? Ooh, an example that's happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> One that's radio-friendly. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's what I'm trying to think. You know, I'm doing a lot of self-censoring here. You could maybe talk about the trip we took last year, David, to um Yeah, to no, that's, that's, that's a great example, example actually. Uh, last year, Adam and I took up a little painting over the summer and we went down to Mexicali just across the border for a week and you know Mexicali really isn't that different from Calexico which Mm. are both just a lot like the kind of LARB area headquarters in Hollywood (laughs) really but it was fascinating to be in in that space and Mm -hmm. not much had changed in terms of geography in terms of culture in terms of scenery But it's almost like I think there was something about our inhabiting a space that was foreign to us, foreign in the sense that it's not a space we normally inhabit, not in the sense that it is totally... It's unintelligible or anything, yeah. That for me was very generative. I found myself writing when I I'd just been expecting to paint Adam mostly. Is that something that you find particularly inspiring, displacement, as like something that breaks you out of your normal context that allows you to explore forms and writing in different ways? Or painting? I'm not sure, to be honest. I think sometimes I do, but it's certainly not something formulaic where I can say, oh, I'm in a bind. I need to get out of town. I mean, I might say that, but I'm certainly not going to get any writing done. What about you, Adam? Do you find that that sense of displacement or being in a place that is maybe familiar, even like L.A., where you've been there many times, but is not your day-to-day experience of reality? Do you find that generative for your writing? Absolutely. And I think there's something really interesting, isn't there, in the theater of crossing a border? This mm. idea of what you leave behind when you cross a border, whether that's whether you, you, know, you land in LAX and show your passport or you drive across the border into Mexicali. You escape something within yourself then, and that can be really, really powerful. You leave certain things behind mm-hmm. and you're stripped down to other sort of more essential characteristics. The other thing I've always found with Los Angeles and the, the many, many times I've been here is that sense of being, for me, as a British writer, being at you know, what we might think of as the kind of sophisticated limit of the English-speaking world. This idea that if you take mm. places like St. Andrews or... Oxford as being these ancient hubs, these ancient centers, and then you go as far away as you can before you know you hit the ocean, and then it's something else entirely on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. There's something really, really powerful about that for me, and really, really, and again coupled with the idea that you know for the first few days you're here, the jet lag is making you wake up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. Yes. and you're you're alive to the dawn in a way you wouldn't be back home. Uh, that's true. Well, and jet lag actually can be incredibly productive for writing because it puts you up when most people are asleep, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
And I think that there is a double vision that takes hold when you're abroad. You're not only seeing the newness around you, but also reflecting with different eyes on, on what you know. And that double vision is very productive. You're always making comparison. And that comparison breeds metaphor and breeds new ways of seeing the world. It reminds me of the conversation the three of us had last, it was last Easter now, we were, we were sitting around one afternoon, this was before the election, and you know, this, this idea of when you, when you revisit... Oh, how sand is, yeah, I know, yeah. but, it was, but <laughs> it was amazing. But, you know, these two seers across the table here called it. You know, they were arguing in their usual persuasive way, elegant way about what was going to happen. You know, we were, we were talking about that, yeah. weren't we? We were sitting around and then other members of the party were being talking in a very kind of dismissive and received way about, the, you know, that Trump will never win, this will never happen. Mm. But there was a sense of being, my visiting Los Angeles, these moments on, on the edge of these these great changes and these shifts, is it, it's a really interesting way of, of reading a, a moment in time, of, of you know, taking the measure of it. And I think yeah. there was looking back on that afternoon now, that feels like a very, very primed moment, doesn't it? Well, yes, and I think that one of the reasons that David was less optimistic about the election, uh, I wasn't as optimistic about the election as some, was precisely because of an international perspective. I've seen regimes fail, <laughs> so mm. it doesn't take much to push a democracy over, over the edge. But let's be hopeful now. <laughs> it's I suppose. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and work hard. Uh, while we have you in the studio, there's a pressing concern. What team do you back? Dodgers, City, or United? I'm a big red United fan through ah. and through. <laughs> Dodgers when I'm over here. Oh, good, good, good. Well, so that's a double vision, too. Yeah, also exactly. just <laughs> very adap- adaptive to his environment. Yeah. yeah, That's right. We've been speaking with David Shook, Boris Trelyuk, and Adam O'Reardon. Thank you guys so much for joining us in the studio to talk about Manchester Writing School. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. Now we turn to this week's book recommendation. We are lucky enough to have Karen Tay Yamashita in the studio with us again today. Karen is the author of the Letters to Memory. That is her most recent book. Of course, she's also a novelist. Karen, you are here to give us a book recommendation. What book are you going to recommend? So I was thinking about an author that I had read several years ago. His name is Pankaj Mishra. The title of the book is From the Ruins of Empire. And then there's a more uh, recent book called The Age of Anger. And I've been really interested in his work as a philosophical thinker and someone who's been thinking about a fundamentalist past, a thinking past that we have that's embedded in what has been going on in the present. This book was a part, probably, of my own project. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for ideas about thinkers in a classical past. So I had looked at Tagore. And I was also interested in in Chinese philosophers of the period. So I was thinking about how this kind of thinking in history has moved through time and is very relevant or uh, has influenced fundamentalist thinking, I would say, in this period. And the project you're referring to is your most recent book, which is Letters to Memory. In what way does Mishra conceptualize fundamentalism, and why did you find that helpful to you or your project? I think he begins that first book with, he cites the Japanese-Russian War, the, the one, one that Japan that won, Japan won yeah. in, it, and it was in 1905, I think. 
And he talks about that war as being very significant for people of color Mm -hmm. or for the third world. I don't know that they thought of themselves third world in, in those days, but, and I was surprised to learn that Tagore, you know, marched outside with his followers and I don't know where he was um, at the time and they celebrated the defeat of the Russians by the Japanese and I thought what's the meaning of this and Mishra takes us back to that time and then begins to unravel why that war and that defeat of Russia is important and important to the present period and why thinkers were excited about that because they felt that there was going to be a turn of empire at that point. And certainly what happens with Japan and the current situation in Modi who is in India, Mm. I would say the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. I think that's a very good case for reading the book. Karen, will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? From the Ruins of Empire. And the other book by Pankaj Mishra is Age of Anger. Thank you so much. Karen Tay Yamashita, author of Letters to Memory. Welcome back. We have David Shook still with us here in the studio, and we are thrilled to have curator Amanda de la Garza in the studio today with us to talk about visualizing language. Huaca in LA, a new installation of murals by the artist collective Tlacolulocos on view in the Los Angeles Central Library. Amanda lives and works in Mexico City as a curator, art historian, and poet. She holds a BA in sociology, a master's in cultural anthropology, and an MA in curatorial studies. She currently works as the adjunct curator at the National Autonomous University of Mexico's University Museum of Contemporary Art. Some of her recent curatorial projects include Isaac Julian, Capital and Playtime, Vicente Rojo, Printed slash Painted, and Jeremy Deller. She has also co-curated Enclave, the experimental poetry festival held at the International Book Fair of the Mining Palace in Mexico City. Her art reviews, scholarly research, essays, and poems have been published in local and international journals as well as art catalogs. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hi, hello. Thank you for having me here today. It's our pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about how the installation came to be? I know that it was part of a commission by the Los Angeles Public Library, but kind of like the story of how this all got started. Well, this uh, story begins in 2015 when uh, the team of the Library Foundation uh, uh, did uh, a research about what type of project they could do in the framework of the Pacific Standard Time Mm -hmm. Getty Initiative. And they came to the idea that they wanted to work around indigenous languages, and in particular, around Oaxaca. So through the Library Foundation consultant, uh, Xochitl uh, Flores Marcial, Mm -hmm. uh, who is uh, Oaxacan and lives in LA. She's a professor at UCLA. And uh, she recommended uh, the team to visit the artists and to get to know their work in in Oaxaca. And afterwards, uh, it was clear for the team that uh, the artists were were the the 
chosen ones to do the or the best uh, artist uh, to portray this relationship between Oaxaca and Los Angeles, speaking about language and also doing this uh, visual artwork that would be hosted in the rotunda of the Central Library uh, in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, can you actually tell us a little bit about the collective, uh, the Tlaculo Locos? Like, what are their major themes that are present in their work? Like, are they also muralistas? Do they typically work in that medium? Yes. Um, this art collective uh, is composed by two artists, Dario Canul and Cosijo Cernas. Both of them come from the Tlacolula, which is a mm-hmm. small town nearby Oaxaca City in in Oaxaca. And they have been working since a very young age. Uh, in they came together as a collective in 2006. And uh, they've uh, uh, worked a lot in the streets uh, in as graffiti okay. artists. They started out as graffiti artists. And, uh, but they also do a lot of printmaking, photography, video, uh, s- art, uh, sound art pieces, soundscapes. So they work in a very uh, wide range of uh, artistic styles and techniques. Can you talk to us a little bit about the curatorial process for the? Because it's an it's very interesting. On the one hand, you have the, um, the 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 murals which are in the rotunda, as you were saying, of the central library are kind of playing off the 1930s murals, uh, which tell a very limited version of the history of California. And these are kind of in juxtaposition with that, both like a cultural juxtaposition and also um, a kind of argumentative juxtaposition. So can you talk about like what the curatorial process was like for you, you know, how you thought about placing and like referencing? Yes. Part of the curatorial work in this case was accompanying the artist throughout the process of developing the project and uh, in this case a commission of a, a very a large-scale commission and uh, that it was also very important that it, it held a dialogue with the, with the library as a public space and also with the murals uh, above, the historical murals uh, painted by Dean Cornwall in right. 1933. And uh, in this case, it had to do with arriving to a project that actually could display all this uh, complexity between uh, Oaxaca or their communities between Oaxaca and L.A. Display the the complex relationships in these two territories. And also I was the link between uh, the Library Foundation and the artists throughout all the Mm. project. I went down to Oaxaca uh, many times during this year and a half that they were working in that commission and uh, that also allowed me you know to develop a working relationship with them to discuss where we wanted to go with the murals wh- how to portray uh, the topics they wanted to mm. address but of course like uh, the work is of the artists and their artri- artistic freedom to to depict all these complex relationships yeah and David can you talk about some of those complex relationships I, I can speak a little bit to that. I, I think it's it's worth mentioning that, you know, Los Angeles, it's been estimated we have about 220 different languages spoken here actively in the uh, Los Angeles uh, school districts. I think L.A. is also, I know, in fact, L.A. is also the largest home to Oaxacans outside of the city and state of Oaxaca and southern Mexico. We have almost a quarter million Oaxacans in greater 
Los Angeles. And there's there's a very complex relationship between Oaxaca and California in that it's a it's a very reciprocal relationship. Culture is moving in mm. both directions. And that to me is is particularly exciting and and part of what makes the the Tlacalulocos murals so frankly so radical and groundbreaking mm. in a lot of ways is that they're they're depicting that two-way stream um, really in, in my opinion quite accurately or or authentically without reservations I think what they're doing makes makes a lot of sense when when you consider the the history of of public art in Mexico and and here too where something like that Cornwall mural of the quote discovery of California right is displayed in a very public place and it's given such a prominence along with the narrative that it represents that we so seldom question it mm -hmm. and and that's to me what what makes this so exciting i'm i'm sure amanda can speak a little bit more historically about muralism and and public art and and how this fits into it but that that to me is is an interesting development in in public art here in LA, I think um, that that again represents that two-way flow of culture. Okay, great. And Amanda, let's talk a little bit about the art itself. I mean, mm -hmm. I, one of the unfortunate limitations of radio is that I can't actually show our listeners what this looks like, but they should definitely go see it. And it is on view in the rotunda of the Central Public Library until until the 31st of January 2018. Okay, so you've got plenty of time to go see it, but definitely go see it as soon as you can because it is true the the images are truly fascinating. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about the images is um, first the kind of centrality of the body to the images, right? The body is both the site for an inscription, so there's lots of obviously tattooing as a major theme in the images, but the body becomes a site of both cultural preservation, but also cultural um, loss, right? So can you talk a little bit about the centrality of the body in a lot of these murals? Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's a very relevant aspect on how they are uh, depicting these uh, contradictions around identity, for mm -hmm. example. So for me, it has to do with the idea of, em of an embodiment of culture and history. Mm. Uh, the, the tattoos, I, of course, uh, they are also tattoo artists. Darío is a tattoo artist as well. And the tattoo has a, a, a very wide range of symbolism and sure. styles and cross-cultural exchanges. But in this case, I also think of tattoos, for example, in, in in the murals as the embodiment of a scar, for example, mm. a historical scar, the scar of colonization, and uh, it's something that has been printed in your body, and you have to acknowledge that scar, for example. But and not just because you want to live in the past or, or you want to uh, only refer to that past and not move forward, but in the sense that that history is what makes you or that history is still in the present, still in the social relations, in racism, in uh, poverty. Uh, the result of colonization is the actual situation in which indigenous communities live uh, not only in Mexico but in the entire world. It's like... Uh, 
Uh, so it's a history of oppression of uh, and a history that's indelible, right? Yeah, indelible. That's both indelible and legible. Uh, and yeah. legible, uh, and also you, the culture—it's uh, an embodied culture. You have uh, where you come from. Your your not your f- only your family history, but uh, there's uh, some sort of legacy that it's also embodied uh, in your skin, even in your skin color, right? Mm. And then the history of your ancestors, the history of your the, your facial or body features, and there's also a history in that that you should recognize and know about in order to uh, situate yourself in the world. Yeah, and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about is that almost, um, I should, full disclosure, don't have any art history background, so treat these, treat me kindly and these like terms that I'll deploy. But there's almost a beatific quality to a lot of the images, right? They, They have this, and I don't quite know how it's achieved, but there's, a, I mean, there it tends to, to look like religious iconography in a way, or mythological iconography. Um, so on the one hand, there is definitely spiritual figures and objects to appear in the murals at various points, sometimes as sites of identification and reclamation, in the case of like certain kind of like offering the candles and stuff like that. Um, but then there's also the, you know, religion as a site of oppression, right, in the figure of the Roman Catholic priest. Um, so can you talk about how spirituality functions within these murals? Yeah, I think it's a very important part of the murals, uh, the religious symbolism that it, you can see in the tattoos, like suffering virgins or the cross mm-hmm. or the the heart of Christ and right. all this uh, Catholic, Roman Catholic symbolism. And also uh, just to an example is that, that the um, pattern uh, that it sh- is in behind all the characters in the murals is taken from the chapel of Tlacolula, which is up a rock uh, church in, in okay. their hometown. And I, th- I think because they see that religion has played a very important role in the communities and the indigenous communities. Most of indigenous communities in Mexico are uh, Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and they've been Roman Catholic throughout the colonization. So, uh, of course, it, it is uh, a mixture with some indigenous traditions, so it's not uh, right, a monolithic right, right, right. Uh, uh, Roman Catholic spirituality or religion, but uh, celebrations, uh, religious celebrations play a very important role for communities and between communities in both sides of the border that it's also very important to speak about because uh, one link uh, or Mm. one aspect that links people in both sides of the border is uh, religion and uh, religion seen as a social form of connection between people, but also still as a form of oppression. Right. So they are depicting it's always these, both, uh, both sides. Yeah. So I think that this is throughout all the murals that this contradictory aspects about culture. And even though they are not religious persons themselves, the artists, they participate of these religious celebrations because they are not just religious celebrations. They are like social and right. communitarian celebrations as well. Right. In a similar way, what do you think the murals say about modern life for the descendants of indigenous peoples from Oaxaca? I mean, on on the one hand, you can see how some of the murals deal very explicitly with alienation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then 
Others seem also about reclamation, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's similar to what we were talking about in terms of religion, where it's this both and, right? It's both like a site of alienation and a site of some kind of like consolidation of an identity that would otherwise be lost. But then I'm kind of left with like, well, where, what is the, the mood of these murals? Yeah, I think one aspect that is portrayed in the murals in relation to how migrants or younger people are experiencing this, uh, their culture, their own culture, uh, and other influences, uh, either because they have migrated they, or they were born here in Los Angeles or because they went back to Mexico after being raised up in Los mm -hmm. Angeles. It's all this cultural crossroads, I would say, that uh, sometimes they, they blend together in a harmonical way. You know, people accept those uh, influences in their identity, but at, at some point they also can be very conflictive because uh, the also one key element for communities or for preserving a community is the idea of tradition. So any cultural change in terms of the idea of tradition represents a threat to the community. But I think that young people and people that have migrated embrace this cultural change and are in on their own changing as well culture. Uh, so then in, in that sense, then, the identity can never actually be fixed, right? It's always hybrid and hybridizing, right, in moving between like both the past and the present, but also between geographic space. Exactly. Yeah, I, totally uh, right to to say that. that, that uh, but I, that's also the point of view of, of the artist, that they don't see their ad identity as some something fixed. And it's not that they reject, for example, Western thought, because in one of the murals you can see a pile of books that is some sort of pillar to this cultural reclamation. And it's a pillar, uh, pillar sorry, of books, a pile of books where you can find poetry, the mm. title of a poetry book. You can find the Bible written in Zapotec, that it's like a colonial inscription okay. from the 16th century, 17th century. And also you can find uh, uh, pop music that normally is very yeah, popular <laughs> among migrants. And also a book uh, from Foucault to understand the uh, power relationships. And uh, for example, uh, God and the State by Bakunin. So it's, it's uh, all these things because they see identity or the, the rec reclamation as a political stand. Mm -hmm. It's not just for culture itself because what it means to, to have a political approach to identity means that you have to speak up and fight back because uh, this possibility is not going to be given to you um, peacefully. Yeah, actually, you know, it, in, in many ways, I was struck when I saw the show this past weekend by the resonance of the kind of identity and cultural reclamation and preservation that the murals are invested in and our contemporary moment, right? So part of me is wondering, like, what kind of conversations are you hoping bring out of the murals for people that come to see them? But also... How do you see the importance of these types of what like a friend of mine would call artivism, right? Mm -hmm. A way of like infusing art with a particular kind of like activist politics um, at the current conjuncture. 
uh, of course, there's different levels. Uh, one has to do with empathy in the sense that people that are don't belong to the Oaxacan community or that are not even migrants can relate to these uh, characters mm. or this history, these particular histories that are portrayed. That I always say that speak about the people you cross uh, with uh, every day or people that work in a restaurant you go to, people that are your neighbors and that probably you had never asked yourself about their story or what they've been through mm. because we live in a city and we are much uh, locked know, inside locked our own in, lives. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and also uh, one aspect I think that is very relevant is the idea of community that uh, in Western societies, normally we we understand ourselves more as an individuals than as, as members of a, mm. a community or a uh, very tight-knit community. So I think that's something very interesting that it's portrayed in the murals that uh, that we can reflect about how there are other people that are having a subjective experience like an, as an individuals, but that they relate to themselves also in a communitarian way. Like uh, they belong to, their sense of belonging is different probably than our sense of belonging, that it's more like general or abstract, so to speak. I belong to this country or I, I am, I have this, uh, I am national of this country or of a certain region. But in this case, I think it, it is a different way of experiencing identity. Well, and competing senses of belonging, right? Exactly. Like that you, you and uh, senses of belonging that compete without negating one or the other. Like I am both and. I am these two things. I have these experiences that are all bound together in my body. Exactly, uh, totally, and uh, but that sometime, uh, sometimes uh, involve also contradictions. And I think the artists are also talking about this. And also some aspects of uh, the life experience of, uh, of, of people are also related to, for example, uh, violence, you know, like uh, narco violence in indigenous communities or mm. even how belonging to a gang is not about an option, not because people are bad, or were born mm -hmm. bad is because it is an option for people that haven't found any sort of opportunity in society. It's uh, it's uh, like society is uh, is pushing them to having no options. When you grow up in a conflicted neighborhood in in Los Angeles or in Mexico City or uh, wherever, like you you don't don't necessarily have any opportunity of. Uh, going out of that content context and having other opportunities. So I think they also speak about migration not only as the dream, for example, mm -hmm. but uh, as a tra uh, tragic event for many people of suffering. So it's not uh, Los Angeles is not only the dream city where you are going to have a better life. It'll pay off your sacrifice, but it's also a place of suffering. Uh, and I think that's that's very interesting to talk about as well. Absolutely. Amanda de la Garza, thank you so much for joining us. And just to remind listeners, Visualizing Language, Oaxaca in L.A. is on view in the rotunda of the Central Public Library until January 2018. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.